another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, oh, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, and I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example that Paul wants to impress upon the Corinthians. When he urges them through Jesus' name, he is urging them as his representative, but also in the light of his example. seems the Corinthians remembered that Jesus died as their substitute, They seem to have forgotten that he lived as their example. Don't miss the fact that he is urging, not demanding. Appealing to them, not commanding them. Which raises the question, why doesn't God just make people do what they ought to do? Why didn't he force these Corinthians to straighten up? Why doesn't he force the preacher into humility or the husband into fidelity or the businessman into integrity? Why doesn't he compel the rich to give to the poor or the dictator to rule justly? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. That isn't the kind of world God created. He created a real world, not a stage set, where real people make real decisions and there are real possibilities to do amazing good or horrendous evil. And in the real world, God's modus operandi is to convince and persuade not to bully and compel. He's granted us the dignity of choosing our own way, even when that way leads to heaven or hell. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, And by the way, all the way through Corinthians, when you read brothers, if you're using an NIV 84 like I am, or some of the other versions, brothers is a literal translation, but the word includes the church family. Paul's going to address women in this letter as well. So the new NIV translates and, and does well, but not literally, brothers and sisters. I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. Or literally, all of you say the same thing. That means something like, all of you come to terms. I'm urging you all to come to terms. See, Paul knew classical Greek. He knew Homer and Aeschylus and Sophocles and Plato. And in classical Greek, the phrase that Paul uses here means, I urge you to make up your differences. You're having conflicts. I'm urging you, urging you, make up your differences. He goes on to say, so that there be no divisions among you. Or literally, that there may be no cracks or tears among you. The Greek word is schismata, 
We get our word schism from that word. It means a crack, say, in a wall, or a tear, say, in a jacket. Cracks were starting to appear all over the Corinthian church. And Paul knew that if action wasn't taken quickly to make up their differences, those cracks would get longer and wider, and the church would fall apart. Rather than that, he says, be perfectly united in mind and thought, or as that could be rendered, be restored to working order in mind and thought. That's the word we looked at in detail a couple months ago. In Ephesians, its noun form is translated equipping. Remember the verses, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12? God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints unto the work of the ministry. The word's basic idea has to do with getting something back into working order. As when the fishermen were mending their nets, that's the same word we have here, mending their nets so that they could go out fishing the next night. The church in Corinth needed to be mended. Its leaders needed to get busy. There were tears appearing. And unless those tears were soon mended, the church was going to go to pieces. How could the church be mended and put back into working order? By coming to agreement. That's what he means by being perfectly united, that's our word, in mind and thought. Or as might be translated, by being mended into the same mindset and opinion. The church, and particularly its leaders, pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, they had to help people think through what was happening and come to agreement. Now, in the art of rhetoric, we've talked about that. It's so prominent in this letter. In the art of rhetoric, verse 10, is known as the propositio, or we get our word proposition from that word. Verse 10 is the reason for the letter. So everything follows in the rest of this letter from this verse. Paul will spend the next 15 chapters trying to persuade, convince, explain, exhort the Corinthians to be mended into the same mindset and opinion. Now, along the way, he's going to tackle some particular issues like sex and marriage and accepting invitations to pagan religious feasts and the proper place of spiritual gifts and so on. But all of these fit into a bigger picture. They all come together within and around a central theme. We'll get to that later. If the propositio is found in verse 10, verse 11 begins what in rhetoric is known as the neratio, a brief explanation for the proposition. In this case, Paul explains how he learned about the cracks in the Corinthian church. Chloe's people told him. They told him what was going on back in Corinth. My brother, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't really know who Chloe was. Some scholars think she was a Christian who opened her home as a meeting place for the church. Christians, uh, in, in the first century, even in the second century, there were no church buildings. No church buildings at all. And so people who had larger homes often would open their homes to the church family to meet in their homes. Chloe might have been one of those people, in which case she probably had money. But the text doesn't say that. It doesn't even say that Chloe was a Christ follower. And since this is the only place in the Bible that she's ever mentioned, we can't say anything about her with certainty. What we do know is that her people, the NIV says some from Chloe's household, but the Greek is just two words, 
and, and you can't translate it in English in two words, but it's something like those of Chloe's. Chloe's people had been in Ephesus for some reason. Ephesus is a long way from Corinth. Some scholars have speculated that Chloe was probably a business owner in Corinth and that her people were either family members, employees, freedmen, or slaves who worked for her. That would explain why Chloe's people were in Ephesus where Paul was living, her business ship product, to and from Corinth. Whether Chloe was Christian or not, we don't know for sure, but some of her people must have been. Probably people who met Paul and had been converted to Christ while Paul was living in Corinth. He spent a year and a half there. And when business took them to Ephesus, they, of course, just had to find Paul. And when they told him how things were going back home, it became clear to Paul that there was trouble in the church he founded. There was discord. There was strife. The word the NIV translates as quarrels is the Greek noun eris. Its verb form, I will strive, I will quarrel, is the word erise, or as we would say in English, heresy. Division in the church was the original Christian heresy. The church of Jesus Christ, remember back verse 2? has been sanctified, it's been set apart as special, it's been reserved for God's use and his glory to treat the church as if it were one's own private possession. To tear it apart so that one can have his or her own piece of it is nothing less or other than heresy. The church is sacred. Let me repeat that. The church is sacred. It belongs to God and is the bride of Christ. So to abuse it by politicizing it or by power grabs or angry invectives, something that God will not ignore. Paul's going to say more about that in chapter 3. And I just tell you now, he's not going to pull any punches. In verse 12, he continues the narratio by explaining what he's heard from Chloe's people. Let me give you an original translation. I say this because each of you says, I'm Pauline. Or, I'm Apollyon, or I'm Kephian, or even I'm a Christian. Has Christ been parceled out? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were you? So this is what his friends, Chloe's people, were telling him. The church was dividing up into parties. There were Paulinists, there were Apollo, I can't say that word, Apollonians, Apollonians, I'll get it. There were Kephians. Cephas is um, the Aramaic name that we translate as Peter. And it's quite possible there was a sanctimonious Christian party. And I say sanctimonious because if they had been sincere about following Christ, Paul certainly would have sided with them. The idea that people were splitting Christ's church in his name or supposedly on his behalf was repulsive to Paul. He and Apollos and Peter were co-workers. They were even friends. They weren't trying to start their own thing. Those three were totally committed to Jesus. Paul didn't want celebrity. He would be horrified by the celebrity status afforded some famous preachers today. Absolutely horrified. Paul was not the leader that people ought to be celebrating. That was Jesus. Behind each of these parties, Paul knew, was pride and the desire for power. Behind each of these parties 
was someone who wanted to use the church to promote a personal agenda. Of all the errors at Corinth, and there were many, moral and theological, this is the one that most angered the apostle. This was heresy. Has Christ been divided, he demands in verse 13. Another translation could be, has Christ been parceled out? A little bit here, a little bit there. Undoubtedly, Paul knew the ancient Egyptian myth of Osiris, the god and son of a god who was betrayed by his brother, then dismembered and his body parts buried throughout Egypt. Paul says, did that happen to Christ? No, but division in the body of Christ falsely implies that it did. A church divided bespeaks a Christ divided. And that's heresy. He goes on. Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? I translate it that way because the Greek expects a no answer to that question. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were you? Again, the question's phrased to expect a no answer. To be baptized into someone's name, as we're going to see later in this letter, especially when we come to chapter 10 is to be identified with that person. If you were baptized into Jesus' name, as many of you have been, you have been identified with him. That's why Paul can say to the Roman Christians, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. To be identified with Christ Jesus means that his death for sin is counted as our death for sin. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. To be identified with Christ Jesus is salvation, it's forgiveness, it's new life. It's to be a member of the people of God. To be identified with Paul meant none of those things. And let me go further so that we can see how this applies in our situation. To be identified with Christ Jesus through faith, and that's what your baptism declared, your identity with Christ through faith, is salvation, forgiveness, new life. To be identified with Lockwood Community Church, covenant partner, membership, is not. Now, I hope Lockwood Community Church is a blessing to the people of God as was to a much greater degree the Apostle Paul. But neither Lockwood Church nor the great Apostle can save anyone. Neither Lockwood nor the Apostle can give life to anyone or hope or entrance into heaven. And yet, just as people once trusted their association with the Apostle, I'm a Paulinist. People today trust their association with the church. I'm a Baptist. I'm an Episcopalian. I'm a Lockwood Church member. If you're trusting in Lockwood Church to save you, change you, and get you to heaven, your trust is in the wrong place. Now, in retrospect, Paul is thankful that he only baptized a few of the Corinthians. He doesn't want them identifying with him, but with his master. In hindsight, he is so glad that he let other people do the baptizing, and he thanks God for it. And then in verse 17, he wraps up this section, the narratio, after which he's going to launch into his argument proper, known in rhetoric as the pro-bodio, and that's going to continue all the way through chapter 16, verse 12. He ends the narratio this way, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That verse deserves careful attention. First of all, when Paul says that Christ did not send him to baptize, we mustn't draw the wrong conclusion. He is not in any way deprecating baptism, and we mustn't read it that way. I've heard people say, well, the Apostle Paul says baptism doesn't matter. No, 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 no. Later on, he will speak of the extraordinary importance of baptism in this letter. Secondly, when we read this verse, we need to realize we're going to come at this differently than first century Corinthians would have come at it. We're not going to hear it or read it the way they did. And for that matter, the way Paul intended. To us, verse 17 is so obviously about religious things. Baptism. Preaching. The gospel. But those words don't have the same religious connotations in the first century as they do now. If you look up baptism in a dictionary as I did, the definition will be something like this. A religious rite. First three words. A religious rite symbolizing purification or regeneration. But to a first century person, the word baptism meant immersion. Not meant. It is the word. Immersion. The act of immersing someone or something in liquid. Most Corinthian Jews had probably never seen anyone baptized. Jews didn't practice baptism. Not until John the Baptist burst on the scene, and his time and his scope was very limited. Most Jews knew nothing about baptism. And the Christian idea of baptism was unknown among Gentiles. When they read this word, they read the word immersion. And the word preach, for us it's inescapably religious. Preaching is what the pastor does on Sunday mornings. And the word gospel, same thing. It's religious, it's churchy, it's a Bible word. But in Greek, the words preach and gospel are not separate words. They're just one word. And initially, that word did not have religious overtones. To a first century Corinthian, the word meant to announce good news. Now, that could be the good news of the emperor's visit. It could be the good news about the winners at the Isthmian Games or about the conclusion of a successful war. Paul said that Christ had sent him to announce good news in Corinth. What was the good news? It's clearly not about the Isthmian Games or about the emperor's visit. The good news he announced was that the one true God was actively calling people to himself, forgiving rebels, establishing a kingdom. He was setting right what went wrong, reconciling adversaries, bringing Jews and Gentiles together for the first time in history. He was redeeming a people in preparation for restoring a world, and he was doing it all through the person of Jesus, through his birth and his death and his resurrection. God was not starting a new religion in the first century. He didn't say, I think I'll start another religion, a better one this time. That's not it at all. He was redeeming a people for himself. The good news that the Corinthians heard was that they could become God's people, whatever their past, whatever their sins. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, a door of opportunity had opened for people to come to God to start a new life and a new community of God's people under God's rule until God's return in Christ. Paul brought 
the good news that the one God is not out to destroy but to save. He'll not force anyone, but he'll accept everyone who comes to him through Jesus the Messiah. The good news for Paul was not some slick advertising campaign to get people associated with the new religion. It was a clear announcement about the one true God, what he's like and what he's done through Jesus to rescue people and restore his creation. As often as someone tells that message, God goes to work, wherever it is, in China, in India, in remote villages, in Minnesota, or in Lockwood Community Church. I expect God's working right now, his spirit speaking into people's minds and hearts. It's not that he's inspiring people to become religious. He's inspiring them to get right, to be his, to be forgiven, to start fresh. Because Paul knew that God himself goes to work whenever this message is told. He knew he didn't need to dress it up with first century sales techniques. He didn't need to employ rhetorical skills or manipulate people by pulling on their heartstrings. If he'd done that, he would have done just what he didn't want the Corinthians to do now, to leave God out of the picture. Or worse, to take his place. So he says... I didn't preach the gospel with words of human wisdom. I wasn't going for eloquence. God didn't send the Messiah to a painful death so that I could charm people into religion by my eloquence and logic. If I do that, I empty the cross of its power. Now, the words of its power are not actually there in the original language, though it's that kind of thing that Paul had in mind. What he writes literally is, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. The cross of Christ is where the fidelity of God and the infidelity of humans intersect. The cross of Christ is the intersection of God's justice and human sinfulness, of God's love and human selfishness. It's the place where human rebels can lay down their arms and enter God's kingdom. It's the place where lost people find a family. But if you empty the cross, it becomes an intersection that leads nowhere. If you empty the cross of its bloody and dying Savior and replace him with soaring rhetoric and shining eloquence, you'll have beautiful religion, but you won't have salvation. Paul's ready to launch into his argument proper which, by the way, he begins with the cross and ends with the resurrection. That is not a coincidence. He knew that the Christians in Corinth needed to see life in the church and not just their entrance into heaven against the backdrop of the cross and the empty tomb. When a Christian sees his life against the backdrop of of the cross, he realizes that he cannot receive eternal life from a humble savior and turn around and live it as a self-important competitor. The Christian life began with sacrifice. It can't continue in selfishness. The Corinthians, and we're going to see this repeatedly in the letter, were living wrongly because they were not living in a way consistent with the good news of the gospel. 
The gospel is not the story of one up, upmanship. It is the story of a God who empties himself so that he can fill the hungry and needy. It's the news of a God who takes the consequences of sin and rebellion onto himself so that he can lift it off of others. It's the news of a God who has every reason to reject us but accepts us instead. It's the news of a God who doesn't stand on his rights but hangs on a cross so that we can stand in grace. How does that news fit with a church divided that is quarreling and trying to one-up each other? How does it fit with a church that's ready to reject one another? The answer is, it doesn't. And that's what Paul wanted the Corinthians to see. That's the theme around which this whole letter revolves. The good news of the God who sent his son to rescue people. The comedian Emo Phillips used to tell this story. He'd, he'd, he'd say, hey, I, I met a guy recently. And I asked him, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? And my new acquaintance said, oh, I'm a Protestant. And I said, oh, me too. What franchise? And he said, I'm a Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, I shouted. We continued to go back and forth. Finally, I asked Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And he said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, you heretic. We need to understand that the church is the body of Christ and the public face of God. The church is not just the medium. It is the message. The church doesn't just tell the message. It embodies the message. It lives the message. And that message had better be the good news of the accepting, not rejecting, sacrificing, not self-seeking, forgiving, not discarding, restoring, not destroying God. It better be the message of the cross. So let's look at our lives and at our church in the light of this text. And you know what? The very first thing it reminds us of is that differences are inevitable. It's going to happen. But discord, quarrels, Anger and malice are heresy. Divisions are inevitable. The rest is heresy. And we don't correct the heresy by going somewhere else, but by coming to terms, by being mended together in one mind and one opinion around the gospel of God. And that means we should, as far as possible, live at peace with all people. We should be reconcile to brothers and sisters against whom we have sinned or who have sinned against us. And that's frequently necessary because we're recovering sinners who do wrong things. But this is God's church sanctified in Jesus Christ and holy, and we must treat it as such. The text also requires us to ask, am I living my life and not just planning my death 
Am I living my life in the light of the cross of Christ? Does my life, and particularly my relationships with the people of God, support or distort the message of the cross? Does my life demonstrate or does it discount the good news of the accepting, not rejecting, sacrificing, not self-seeking, forgiving, not discarding God? So to apply, do this. Ask God to show you any relationships with family, with friends, with co-workers in the church where your actions or attitudes contradict the message of the cross. And if one comes to mind, or numerous ones come to mind, think hard about that or those relationships and what changes are necessary for your life to embody the message of the cross. Ask God for help, and then step out and make those changes. All right, let's pray. I thank you, God, that you are a communicating person. You're sharing your life with us in the words of Scripture and especially in the word, your Son, and by your Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who have not entered into your family. I ask you to speak to their hearts right now. Convince and persuade and exhort and call. I ask for all of us, Lord, that we might see clearly that our lives might not discount the truth we speak with our mouths. But when it does, Lord, that you'll give us humility and grace to change. For Jesus' sake, amen.